You know, when we talk about uh, sola fide, we have to understand that the doctrine of justification by faith alone was the Reformation's main plank. It was faith alone. It was also followed by sola gratia. It was grace alone and solus Christos. Christ alone, the three solas of the Reformation, is they were there to just point and just be so blatant about the fact that our salvation is by grace alone, through the faith alone, in Christ alone. That we also see, however, that the Reformers emphasized a word that they found to be absolutely essential to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which they in turn saw as essential to a right understanding of the gospel. And that word is imputation. Imputation. And during the talks around the uh, the church and everything that has happened in the history of Christian belief, there are differences between evangelicals, those that, uh, that humble church, that church movement that was really founded on the gospel, the evangelion. The evangelicals were focused on the true and tried and biblical and concrete and humble message of a savior who came to redeem a sinful humanity, those that were his and to ransom them, rescue them from the eternal condemnation away from their creator. And Roman Catholics, the other side of that, the side that was really um, fighting against the reformers, reformers such as John Knox, John Calvin, Martin Luther, these men who were by no means perfect and not inspired by God, but that they were used by God in a mighty way to preach the truth of this imputation. Imputation came at a difference for both evangelicals and Roman Catholics. The reformed theologian Michael Horton likened imputation to chocolate chips in the making of chocolate chip cookies. If you set all the ingredients to make the chocolate chip cookies, but you leave out the singular ingredient of chocolate chips, then you no longer have chocolate chip cookies, which is what you set out to bake in the first place. Instead, what you have is just dough. It's just a naked cookie with nothing at all and it completely defeats the purpose. Likewise, if you have most of the key ingredients of the gospel, see, and you don't have an understanding that we are sinners, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the true God, you can have an understanding of God as holy and just, but you can also have an understanding of Christ and his cross. This is the balance that we need to be able to strike as readers and studiers of the word of God. Those who look at the scriptures and not just uh, blankly uh, believe them, but are studying what they say. But if you leave out imputation, this central truth of the Reformation and a central truth of the New Testament, really, and even, and even the old, you don't have the gospel. This is why the reformers considered the word absolutely essential to a biblically fruitful and faithful proclamation of the gospel. But what does this word imputation mean? And this is where I really want to get more in depth. And please, in the comments below, tell me what and how this idea of imputation has affected not only your life, but the lives of those around you. The word imputation comes directly from the Latin and its accounting term. It is an accounting term. It means to apply to one's account. Expenses are debited and income is credited. In the old King James Version, this word was reckon, to be reckoned as. 
In theological terms, we speak of a double imputation that we find that is really cemented in the pages of Scripture by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says plainly, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Speaking of Christ, the one who was righteous, the one who had a perfect account, the one who was reckoned as just and perfect and completely moral, he was made to be sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ, and this is double in, in this double imputation, Christ, the one who knew no sin, becomes sin for us. He who knew no sin carries upon himself the curse, not only of all of humanity, all those who were to put faith in him, but also of all of the created order. It is on him. He who knew no sin becomes a curse. The main personification of sin, he carries upon himself this burden. So he carries the sin of the world, and we, in this double imputation, Christ takes our sin, and we take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every perfect work every obedient action to the law of Moses, every merciful act, every act of kindness, every healing, every rebuking of demons, every act of worship to God in perfect obedience to the law and in perfect love towards neighbor and enemy is accredited to us, to those who put their faith in him. Here we read that our sin is imputed to Christ. We are the offending party. And so many people forget that before they come to the gospel and even when they come and they first hear about Christ, we are the offending party. God is not pardoning people who are not guilty. In order for us to understand that there is a mercy and a grace to the gospel, we first need to understand that there is a sin nature in every single being that has been created under Adam. Adam is our federal head. Under Adam and Eve, we come. Adam and Eve set the tone for the rest of humanity. Once we were born in Adam, we were born into sin. So this is what the Apostle Paul says. This is why the Old Testament said, No one is good, no, not one. No one seeks after God. And the problem with Rome, the problem with the Roman Catholic Church, with all due respect, and we have to talk about these things from a biblical perspective, is that it does not understand the tragedy of sin. There is no doctrine where sin, the sinfulness of man, the anthropology is one that leads to a full-fledged sinner that cannot be at all reconciled from his own account, but through the gospel. We are the offending party. He is guiltless. We cannot keep the law that he perfectly kept. And yet on the cross, God poured out his wrath on Christ. Why? Because our sin was imputed to Christ. Christ took upon himself our sin, not his own sin. He is blameless. He is not full of shame. He does not have anything that separates him from perfect communion with God the Father. And yet though he took upon himself the sinfulness of man, the cursing of this earth, the cursing of this creation, and he took captive captivity. Our, date, our great debt was put on his account. And Christ paid the horrific penalty as a cup of God's wrath that was poured out upon him. We remember uh, the words that he says to the sons of thunder. Are you willing to drink from this cup? And even in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is about to be taken captive by Judas and those soldiers who were accompanying him. He says, Father, 
Take this cup away from me, but let not my will be done, but your will be done. This cup, what cup is Jesus speaking of? He's obviously talking about the cup of wrath, the cup of punishment, the cup of cursing, the cup. This is the cup that people, a lot of people who proclaim the gospel, do not enter into the conversation. See, because this theology is very gruesome and bloody. See, because this type of biblical understanding is very violent. Yeah, there, there's a violence about this. Yeah, but there's a violence that leads to a complete peace. Because he was nailed to the cross, we can find reconciliation with God. Because he was able to be offered as a sin sacrifice, we are able to be washed by and cleansed by his blood. There's also a second imputation. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. He not only makes and takes our debt, but He also gives us His credit card. <laughs> the credit that Christ brought, the credit that Christ grew, and the credit that Christ created on this earth with everything that He did, every action, every thought, every fiber of His being becomes accredited to us. Christ paid the penalty we could never satisfy. But he also kept the law perfectly. And in the Gospels, we see this idea, this, this growing crescendo of not only Christ's personhood, because the Gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his personhood, who he is, what, it, what are his characteristics, how he moves, how he speaks, how he talks, but also his works, his righteousness, the way that he was baptized in the river Jordan and he tells John the Baptist it is necessary that we fulfill all righteousness submitting himself under the same baptism that John was calling for a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel but he also keeps the law perfectly when he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert by Satan himself he does not contradict the Word of God he upholds the law of God he upholds the Word of God and he is the new and better Adam through those that are in him will inherit the kingdom of God we stand before God's clothed in Christ's righteousness our robes are not our own it is a shame and it is so sad to see that so many people would dare to think that they can come before the throne of God clothed in their own righteousness. See, because even our own righteousness, the prophet Isaiah said, in our own human fickle mind and our own limited understanding is dirty rags. And the translation there in the original Hebrew is not just dirty rags, but it is menstrual rags that a woman would use to cleanse herself when she was in her cycle. We can actually say that we are saved by works, but not our own works, the works of Christ. And this is the essential point that the Reformation is trying to get at. This is what the Bible, because the Reformation, we could lose the Reformation completely, but the point of that movement that we celebrate on October 31st is not the men, it's not the debates, it's not the philosophical argumentation, but it is a movement back to the original sources, ad fontes. And what's the original source, my friends? It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit who inspires this blessed and sacred book. And now we can go back and we can go to the primary Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and we can say like these men, sola Deo Gloria, sola Fide, sola Gratia, solus Christus. This is all for Him, by Him and through Him. One theologian said that two of the most beautiful words in the Bible are for us. Jesus lived and died 
and rose again for us and for you. All of his work was done on our behalf. You know, Calvin remarked that imputation was the principal hinge of all religion. All true religion, that is. Along these lines, it was Martin Luther who brought the issue to the foreground in the 16th century theological debate, insisting that the importance of the imputation was contra contrasted with infusion. That's the Roman Catholic belief of justification. And this was paramount and exacerbately linked to a proper Christian understanding of the gospel. In Luther's famous introduction in his commentary to the letter to the Galatians, he talks a little bit about imputation and infusion. And there's something that we need to understand. And we'll get this a little bit more in our next episode as we try to cover this main idea of justification by faith alone. The idea of infused righteousness. A type of righteousness that is on the basis and the central fundamental Roman Catholic doctrine of justification as defined by the early church father Thomas Aquinas. In one of his uh, most opportune works and most famous works, the Summa Theologica, Aquinas wrote, and I leave you with this quote from him, I answer that justification, taken passively, implies a movement towards justice, as heating implies a movement towards heat. But since justice by its nature implies a certain rectitude of order, it may be taken in two ways. First, inasmuch as it implies a right order in man's act, and thus justice is placed amongst the virtues, either as particular justice, which directs a man's act by regulating them in relation to his fellow man, or a legal justice. Notice the language here. So it is a man's act, or a legal justice, which directs a man's acts by regulating them in the relation to the common good of society, as it appears in its ethics. My friends, justification by faith alone is not just a, a simple philosophical idea. It is not just something that has to do with regulating men's acts. No, God is the one withholding and holding back the evilness of man. But justification by faith alone is something that you and I cannot operate. Have, we can't even muster it. We cannot create it. Justification by faith alone is for those of us who are humble enough. We have been convicted by the Spirit of God to say, I am humble and I recognize that I cannot save myself. I cannot even come to a knowledge of Christ on my own unless the Holy Spirit works and is truly in us and for us. I invite you to take a hold of this Christ who offers us a justification by His grace alone, by faith alone, and in Christ alone. This has been Sit Down and Listen.